Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This conference will now be recorded. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 23rd episode of OT Leadership Live. My name is Rosalia Casanova, and I will be co-facilitating our conversation this evening with my colleague and fellow Community of Leaders member, Dr. Bill Wong. For those of you new to OT Leadership Live, welcome. And for those of you who have participated in our episodes, welcome back. We have a special episode planned for you this evening, and I'm very excited to hear from our guests. Julie Berg, Melody Boak, and Ruthie Rowane about leadership and how the profession of OT can continue meeting society's occupational needs in an ever-changing healthcare and education climate. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Rosalia Casanova, and I will be co-facilitating tonight's discussion with Bill Wong. Bill and I are members of AOTA's Community of Leaders, an informal AOTA group or community of practice with a shared interest in leadership. AOTA's community of leaders is dedicated to promoting leadership within occupational therapy and building an AOTA leadership community. OT Leadership Live is a podcast series designed to reach practitioners and students with an interest in leadership across a variety of relevant professional topics. At this time, I would like to introduce our guest, Julie Berg is an occupational therapist with 23 years of experience in working in skilled nursing and geriatric settings. She became a licensed OTA in 1997 and earned her MSOT degree in 2008. After serving as a director of rehab for four years at a local skilled nursing facility, Julie was promoted to a regional mentor position. Julie continues to serve in this role and recalls first learning about occupational therapy when she worked as a CNA. Julie knew OT was the right career for her when she learned from an occupational therapist how to help a resident perform lower body dressing more independently using adaptive equipment. Welcome, Julie. Melody Boak is an occupational therapy assistant from Lodgepole, South Dakota. Melody attended college at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota, where she received her Bachelor of Science in Human Performance and Fitness with minors in health coaching and psychology. Following her bachelor, while going to school for her associate's degree in occupational therapy, Melody served as her program's SOTA president, student body president, as well as serving on the state and national level as the OTA representative to the ASDSC. Following school, Melody decided to become a travel therapist and has been traveling for about three and a half years while taking some time off between assignments to travel abroad. As a travel therapist, she's had the opportunity to work in skilled nursing facilities, acute rehabs, and outpatient therapy. Melody's passion is helping people become the best they can be and not letting a disease define or limit the person. She loves advocating for her profession and helping people of all ages reach their full potential. 
She has been she has seen both sides of healthcare due to a variety of illnesses and injuries throughout her life and truly believes that no diagnosis can determine a person's potential. She loves working as a team and collaborating with the rest of the medical team in order to truly help her patients reach their full potential. Welcome, Melody. Ruthie Rowane graduated from Mary Baldwin University in May 2019 with her entry-level doctorate in occupational therapy. While attending Mary Baldwin, Ruthie served as the vice president of the Student Occupational Therapy Association for her class. She works full-time in school-based therapy for Prince George County Public Schools and maintains a PRN position at Encompass Health. Welcome, Ruthie. Thank you to our guests for participating. We look forward to really learning about your leadership journey during our discussion this evening. I will direct the first question to Julie, then repeat the same question for Melody and Ruthie. Now, through your experiences, you have all certainly experienced different leadership roles. A unique attribute about OT is that we can transition into many roles of leadership. So how do you define leadership and what does leadership mean to you? Julie? Thank you. I would define leadership as leading a group um, or guiding a team through an entire process to achieve a set goal um, through researching, empowering, self-demonstration, motivating, listening, and supporting the team. Um, I feel like you are really working with a group or a team to achieve, achieve common goals um, or a positive outcome. So everyone needs to work together. Even though you're a leader, everyone still works together to achieve the outcome. Thank you. Now, Melody, what does, what does leadership mean to you? Thank you. I view leadership as a way to take everyone's opinions and everyone's experiences and collaborate them to help the whole team as a whole reach a set goal. Um, while working on the ASDSC during college, I had the unique experience to represent OTA schools across the country. And while doing that, I had students from across the country that I had never met before messaged me with their concerns and being able to support them and translate for them and speak for them on a platform to be able to get their concerns across and answer their questions um, really gave me an insight into how to be a leader, not only for the people that you're immediately surrounded with, but the people that you've never met yet that may be looking at you from a different standpoint that you may not even recognize. And leadership and to me also just means being able to advocate and being able to be held accountable for what you're deciding and what your team is deciding. Thank you. And you know, what I find interesting about that is, and especially with your experiences, because um, like you mentioned while you were in school as the, the representative, you met other um, students um, from different parts of the world. And here you are be as a traveling therapist, sort of seeing the other side of that and experiencing that on a different level. Thank you. And Ruthie? 
Yeah, so I uh, think of leadership as a dynamic process um, where uh, it's used to facilitate change by inspiring um, a group of people. I feel that a good leader really brings a group of individuals together and uses their unique skills and their talents um, to achieve a common goal. Um, I've, uh, we talked about a lot of types of leadership in school, and one that really spoke to me was servant leadership. And um, in practice, I saw uh, this really excellent, an excellent example of this being used, and I was so impressed by how it really facilitated team cohesion. Um, a leader can set a really good example through their actions and really influence others to uh, follow suit. All right, so this is Bill here. Um, definitely, I really feel very good about the next question because I personally have experienced some transitions myself, and I believe this is very handy for our audience members who hear this recording should hear. So the question is directed to Melody. What transitions have you experienced, and how did you lead that change? So as a traveling therapist, I kind of experience transitions quite often because I transition jobs quite often. So one thing that I have learned is to always advocate for my strengths no matter where I go. So when I come into a new facility, I like to get to know my team that's around me, but also the rest of the medical team, the CNAs, um, the nursing staff, the administrative staff, who is going to be helping me and who I need to look for for that leadership and where I fall on that leadership category. You know, going into a new facility is a little difficult, but when you come into a facility or you come into a new experience, um, you just have to make sure that you're advocating for your strength. And if you come in with a positive mindset and you know exactly what you want to accomplish and what you're capable of, then that's going to allow your leadership to stand more upfront and you're going to be um, more prepared to take on that leadership role and more people are going to be looking for you, looking toward you for answers and knowing that you can accomplish things. So um, just knowing what I was capable of has helped me with a lot of my transitions, um, knowing what I'm comfortable with and what I like to do as far as my therapy practice um, has also helped. and. Um, some other leadership things, like when I was in school, you know, looking around for those mentors to help guide you and to help, you know, help motivate you to accomplish all the goals that you have for yourself and for your team. I definitely agree with that. I know personally, I know last year I transitioned into Guinea myself. And definitely, it is definitely a situation to sort of advocate for my strengths as well. And I know also, like, having been also working in so many skilled nursing facilities, definitely I have learned how to not only advocate for myself, for my strengths, but also, like, knowing my limitations as well. And I think that is also very important. Now, Ruby, I'm going to direct the same questions to you. So what transitions have you experienced, and how do you lead that change? Yeah, so as a first-year T, I have experienced quite a few transitions. Um, I transitioned from, first of all, the student role uh, into this practitioner role. Um, additionally, I spent my field work um, gaining my pediatric experience in an out, outpatient setting 
However, um, for my first full-time job, I chose to go into the school-based setting, which I had not had experience in. Um, so I really had to support this transition by building relationships with the teachers I was working with um, and building relationships with more knowledgeable OTs um, in this setting and uh, finding resources that could really help me succeed in this, this new role. And um, I really agree with Melody as well for advocating for your strengths um, and being confident with your own practice, um, knowing what you're capable of, because when you're so new in, um, in a different setting, you really have to have that confidence to help get you through. Thank you, Ruby. Yeah, I definitely remember my days when I first started skill nursing. Definitely is, it took me some time to advocate for my strengths as well. So thank you. Now, Julie, what transitions have you experienced and how did you lead that change? Um, I would say that one of my larger transitions was when I went um, from uh, being a director of rehab to a regional mentor. Um, this is a huge change. I had to learn how to lead a large group compared to a smaller, more intimate um, direct team that I had as a DOR. I also had to transition from one facility to multiple facilities. At one point, I had 13 facilities. Um, so that's a lot of, you know, compared staff members of 10, now 100, uh, leading 100. So it was um, definitely a lot of changes happening at once. Um, some of the things that I had to do initially, I had to really rely on my mentors to help guide my decisions um, and help build some of my uh, management and leadership skills. Um, I tried to use as many resources as possible. Um, you know, anytime new situations would come up, I would try to do research on whatever the challenges were. That way, when I would approach my teams, I knew and felt confident what I was relaying for information and expecting outcomes. And, you know, I, I felt comfortable that they were appropriate. So there was a lot of um, the business side of the therapy that I had to learn compared to more of the clinical side. I've always been, as a DOR, I was always still very clinically involved with all of my teams. So it was a little bit of a shift with how I was performing my services as an OT as well. Um, I really had to learn to delegate more, empower my directors of therapy to lead their teams and mentor them on their leadership skills as well. Um, once I was able to earn the trust and had uh, some strong teams um, built, we were able to get all the outcomes that we needed. So I, I really wanted to praise a lot of the staff members because everything that we were working for was actually, um, they were all getting the rewards of feeling like they've given the best therapy, but we also met the business side of things at the same time. Um, I was also very upfront with all of the staff and I let them know that I was brand new as a regional mentor and, you know, it was, I didn't have all of the answers, but they certainly could ask me any questions. And if I didn't know the answer, I would find out and I would be sure to um, always tell them the communication of what the result was so that there was always a 360 degree communication. 
So communication was a huge part of my solution for that transition as well. Um, I also really shared my passion of working as a therapist. Um, so I took my clinical strengths. If there were any challenges at the patient levels, say they had patients who were difficult to work with, they had challenges, I would go and see the patients with them and I would problem solve with them. Um, so I really used my strengths as um, being a clinician for that too. Um, I think um, overall, it was just a large transition because there were so many different levels involved with that, but it was, it was good. It was a very good experience. And I'm still a regional mentor at this time. Thank you, Julie. Um, just from hearing you guys speak, it just, um, I was just like listening and, and I was just like pulling different like key words like passion and research, mentorship and confidence. And this certainly um, are different um, characteristics or qualities um, that leaderships do have um, in order to be successful leadership. So I think everything that you are all doing um, are on different levels, but it shows and speaks on, on exactly what our role in leadership is and how we can um, be part of it. So my next question, and I'm going to direct this to Ruthie, and I know that you certainly um, were required to navigate certain changes as not only a new grad, but also balancing two different um, work settings. So what leadership skills or supports did you call upon to successfully navigate any particular challenging periods of transition? So through this time of transition and my first year of practice, um, I've really had to take leadership over my own practice as an OT to identify resources um, to support me. Um, I've looked to some experts in the field. For example, one of my professors at Barry Baldwin University was um, Pam Stevenson, who served as an SIS chairperson. And um, she was able to recommend a lot of resources to support my growth in this setting. Um, and AOTA offers a lot of um, supports as well um, to practice in the school-based setting. I'm also um, a contracted OT, so I'm hired through a company outside the county I work in. So I don't actually have a supervisor in my building or even really in the same state. And um, so when I have a question, I don't really have anybody to just run down the hall and ask. So I, you know, when nobody's there to ask, answer a question for you, you're really forced to use your own clinical reasoning um, to find the answers. So I had to trust in my own clinical reasoning, um, build a network of, of coworkers, um, other, you know, other therapists in the counties, um, speech therapists that worked at the school that I, I'm at, um, and also finding um, just a mentor to support myself during this transition. And those are all really good points because I think that um, sometimes new grads, they get so excited about getting into the field and practicing and making that first check and, you know, working their first caseload that they, they, they slowly realize that they need that additional support. And, you know, those examples that you did state are excellent resources for any, um, not only entry-level practitioner, but also anyone that's transitioning from one area of practice to the other. So I think that with that 
those are that, that was a great um, example that you you did state there. Thank you. And Julie, what leadership skills or supports did you call upon to successfully navigate any particular challenging periods of transition? Um, I think right now oh, we're going through this whole current challenge with uh, the pandemic, COVID-19. It's actually bringing out some different skills, um, which I kind of wanted to touch on because typically I may not kind of use all of these different skills at once. However, uh, currently we have so many staff members that are just very anxious. They're scared. They're in the front lines working with our most vulnerable older adult geriatric population. Um, I think honesty is really important right now. Um, and also leading by example, you know, I'm going to the facilities and I'm working with the teams. I do have the ability to work remotely, but I feel like it's very important that I'm right there in the front lines with the teams so that they know that this is important to me and it's passionate. I'm very passionate about it as well. Um, also, I think, you know, you know, looking at the level of commitment that your leader is giving the team is really important. Um, I think you have to be very open and really listen to them and have empathy for any of their challenges and concerns. Um, communication and transparency are really important. Um, I'm doing more frequent meetings staff meetings, emailing updates, um, even some of the therapists who are a little more anxious, even just sending them like a, a daily text message. Uh, the, there's big concerns about all of the PPE right now and availability of the masks at a lot of facilities. I'm actually ordering supplies and making my staff members all masks so they can really see that I'm I'm there with them. So the support is just Honestly, it's really, really big for this transition that they're all going through right now. And I'm going through the transition with them. So I think, you know, different situations, you'll have a lot of different um, types of transitions and um, skills that you'll bring to your leadership with your practice. Thank you. And, you know, you mentioned um, COVID-19, and I think that right now leaders are, this is their time to not only shine, but show their, you know, their their employees, their therapists, exactly what leaders are about. And, you know, as you mentioned, being there for them and making the, that, that contact, that connection, um, just brings them, I'm sure, peace of mind of, you know, yes, I, you know, this is my leader and this is what my leader's doing. And just the smallest um, message of just sending a text message, I'm sure, um, hits hits them close to home and appreciate that um, during such difficult times. Thank you for sharing, uh, Julie. Now, Melody, what leadership skills or supports um, did you call upon to successfully navigate any particular challenging periods of transition? So when I first started traveling, it was really difficult for me not only to go into a new setting, um, working in those skilled nursing facilities, going into different buildings that I didn't know any of the staff, but also completely moving towns every couple months, meeting a whole new community of people, and going into a community where you don't know anyone. So 
communication, I would say, is definitely my number one leadership skill. I like to go in um, with a positive attitude on the first day and just make friends with everyone that I possibly can, try to make advocates and advocate for myself and try to make that network um, as large as I possibly can. I think organization is also a really good leadership skill to take with you no matter where you're at so that you can, like I said, advocate for yourself and know what you're capable of and what you're allowed to do. Um, Some, especially in the skilled nursing facility and in times of chaos like this, a lot of things are getting thrown around like you just need to jump in and help out and do all of these things. But unless you're actually allowed to do it, um, just knowing what you're actually capable of doing and not allowing yourself to get overboard with that. And I, along with the network, I would say my number one thing um, is my friends and family that I've met through AOTA. All of my other OT mentors around the country and friends around the country that I call when I'm stressed out about a certain case and a certain patient and I'm completely mind blown and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm stressed out about it. I just like to call my other OT people and just kind of give them a gist of what's going on and ask for other opinions because sometimes somebody looking in from the outside could have a completely different opinion that you never even thought of. So being able to share ideas with other people on your team and other people in our profession uh, is definitely one of the supports that I called upon throughout all of my transitions throughout the years. So, and then one of my most challenging periods, I think, was a couple years ago, I got diagnosed with valley fever, which is a fungal infection in my lungs. And I was actually out of work for eight months um, due to valley fever. And it was really hard on me to get back on my feet and Thankfully, all of my networks kind of pulled together and helped me out and encouraged me to get back on my feet and help me stay motivated and stay encouraged to complete my passion and get back in the travel arena and continue helping as many people as I possibly can. So um, now I kind of prefer to lead by example. I usually share my story with my patients because when I'm working with elderly patients that don't want to do anything, it's nice to have somebody that's been there and that's come from the bottom and come back and been able to, you know, help other people. So letting people know that they're not alone in everything that they're going through and that you're on their team and they have somebody that they can trust is definitely a huge, huge thing that they need to know. Yeah. Okay. Let's go here. So yeah, I definitely hear a lot of you guys from different things, and I know with Melody, with your experiences, I remember sometimes when I go to like the Chinese-speaking buildings in the skilled nursing facilities because I can speak Cantonese and Mandarin. So definitely, I've seen the same effects in terms of using my own language skills to try to relate to the patients. And there are times that I know for me is like the patients would feel like, oh, you speak my language. So you're definitely on my team, you know, so I definitely see that. And of course, also like other aspects as well, I've seen as well in the skilled and facility setting and of course, recently in academia as well. So this leads me to the next question. And I know this is very relevant to me because even though I'm very 
relatively experienced now in terms of school nursing facility setting, but I know in terms of academia, still pretty new. So I definitely see this question from time to time when I go into the classroom. So Julie, the question I have for you is, how do you enroll others to support you in new ideas? I think the biggest thing that I like to start with is I need to believe in what I'm asking someone else to do. And if I feel positive about it, then it's, I, I feel like it's very easy to get others to buy into, you know, what we're trying to achieve. Um, uh, something that I might do is show some statistics or research to back up what I'm asking. Um, and examples of that might be um, facilities have reports that show key factors. And if I wanted um, a, a therapist to pick up long-term care patients um, because they've had a fall, and the way that I'm looking through the reports and researching it and showing them and presenting it will make a big difference on how they react. If I say, oh, um, Mrs. J had a fall, can you do an eval with her? I may get a, you know, someone who says, okay, I'll do an eval. But if I say, oh, look, Mrs. J has shown that she's had three falls in the past four weeks, you know, something might be going on with her. We need to, you know, pick her up and do some evaluations and do some um, further root cause analysis and, you know, develop some kind of a fall protocol for her. I'm going to get a little more interest with that therapist's reaction. And then I can take it a step further. Um, I had a, an administrator who was really involved with falls. I wanted to make sure that I, I felt comfortable and confident when I was following up on items that she wanted, as well as teaching and training and leading the therapist. So I took a couple of uh, continuing ed courses. Now I can feel comfortable sharing that experience with the therapist. This is how we can do a cause analysis. Um, these are the courses that I took share my information with them. Now they feel like, oh, geez, there's so much that I can do with this patient. There's, you know, a huge amount of intervention that can be uh, completed and we can really make a difference on this outcome. So really showing the therapist the research behind what we're doing or the statistics behind what we're doing can make that big difference. Um, I think another thing is just using positive reinforcement. Sometimes if you, you know, are follow our labor laws, you have to have no meal break violations. Make it a, a, a fun competition. If, if your facility doesn't have any meal break violations for three months, you guys all get treated to a lunch on the company. So sometimes a little bit of positive reinforcement is good as well. Definitely. I think that's a very good. I know for me and my own end is like recently, I guess my since I also teach in academia. So uh, I know recently I got asked to take on level one students for psychosocial field work. So actually, I talked to the administrator to get the activities directors involved. And for me, it's like with my experience is like having some good positive students experiences. I think that really motivate the facility to be more open to having students for the level ones. So definitely, I have definitely seen changes on that end as well. And Melody, now I'm going to direct the same questions to you. How do you enroll others to support you in new ideas? 
So when I was on the ASDSC in college, um, a good friend of mine who is an OT um, told me that every crazy idea is probably a good idea. And I kind of stand by that because even now, some things that, some new ideas that I have that I think in my head are crazy and completely unattainable, uh, the only way I can enroll other people to support my ideas, however crazy they may be, is just to communicate my ideas and share my perspective on what I'm thinking to educate myself on the, you know, people that have tried it and attempted it and how it worked for them and things that I could maybe adapt or modify and change so that it might have a better outcome. And then just asking people to, you know, keep an open mind um, to not put themselves and our profession in a box. I remember when I was, it was my first year on the ASDSC and I was with the leadership team and we were all sitting in a hotel lobby. It was probably midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And we were all just sitting around talking about crazy ideas of how OT, like all of the job perspectives of non-traditional OT and where OT could benefit the world and looking at the chaos that COVID-19 has spread around our country. I think back to that night in the hotel lobby with all of my amazing OT friends. And I think about all of the places that we had talked about how OT could benefit and even now it comes into my head even stronger that you know especially after COVID-19 if there was any way to implement OT non-traditional practices to be able to you know keep an open mind about what OT is capable of in the future you know I, I communicate with all of my friends and I just motivate them to keep an open mind and not close OT into a box I think that Oh yeah, speaking of crazy ideas, you know I have a few myself. I think there's one that I've been pushing over the years in OT land is that, well, as OT students or practitioners, we are definitely capable to curate TEDx events, which is something that I'm personally passionate about. You know, I know for me it's like, I've been trying to prove it through my actions as some of you might have seen my article on OT practice talking about my experiencing my experiences in terms of organizing a TEDx event as an OT, being the first OT who's done it. So definitely, I know right now, in terms of this idea, is still pretty crazy in the OT world. But with the new changes that are related to, I guess, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the new sort of the TEDx world definitely uh, has inspired inspired some new changes on that front as well. So when I knew about that, so personally I've been pushing for the agenda like, hey, why don't we curate online TEDx events? So that is something that I know personally that's a crazy idea that I'm pushing towards. So now to Rufy, I'm gonna direct the same question to you. How do you enroll others to support you in new ideas? So this is something that is so important in the school-based setting. Um, you're constantly trying to sell your ideas to the teachers. Um, you know, you'll be offering suggestions for how to support sensory processing in the classroom and, you know, recommending to put a TheraBand around the legs of a chair just sounds kind of crazy. 
And so you're constantly having to um, find a way to get their support. Um, and one, one thing that I was really advocating for when I started was um, a more integrative approach to OT um, in the school that I'm at. And to get the teachers on board with this and with all my suggestions, I try to refer back to the evidence and really um, have the support to back me up saying, well, this is, you know, this is shown to help with this and this is why I want to take this approach. Um, and, you know, I, I was really successful with a teacher who, um, I had one of her students who was working on a handwriting goal and I asked, you know, to kind of come into their classroom and try to integrate my session into what they were doing. And she was like, oh, well, you know, we do a writer's workshop, so you could totally come in and, you know, work with, work with a student then. Um, and it was, she was able to see that this was such a great way to do OT because I was able to collaborate with her in the moment about different strategies that, you know, were um, reasonable for her to implement. And we could really tell it was supporting his, his classroom performance and he was a lot more engaged during um, this part of class, even though it was not a um, preferred activity. Um, and he, um, we really saw a lot of success towards, um, towards their goals. Thank you, Ruthie. And I think that, you know, um, always when, when we have those moments that we're not sure of what, what to do next, and we always, um, it doesn't matter how new or how seasoned um, you are as a therapist, those, those moments that we hit that we're just not sure what to do next and falling back to our research and evidence is so important because it allows us to not only um, engage in maybe new treatment approaches, but also maybe um, be intrigued in um, a new area of, of possibly applying um, interventions for our clients. And I think that also um, addresses that innovative um, and emerging practice areas that OTs are constantly diving into because we have that ability to like open open up our worlds and open up so many different doors as far as, you know, what we can do. And Bill just um, stated an example of how he does that. And I think that that is such a intriguing and um, such a, a well-defined um, um, way that occupational therapists can continue to grow our profession. Now, my next question, I want to um, um, direct this to Melody. And I think that this question is, um, very interesting in the sense that you, as not only a traveling therapist, but as an occupational therapy assistant, has um, recently, not just with the um, COVID pandemic, but with changes in Medicare and policies that may affect your, your practice. Now, how are society's occupational needs changing given the current healthcare and education climate? How can the profession of OT help lead this change? As I've kind of said before, I think advocacy is our greatest benefactor in this area. You know, a lot of changes have gone through with PDPM and a lot of therapists across the board have lost their jobs and different companies are trying to just make a buck and trying to play the business aspect and I think it's really up to the OTs and our profession to advocate and understand and explain to people why it is that we are so important, why it is that, you know, we need more OTs in the field and we need to be able to provide the care that we can to all of our patients. They need the best care that they can so that they can 
you know, have the best possible outcome. And I think society as a whole, there are so many places that OT has not even tapped into yet that are possible. And I'm excited to see, especially after all of this COVID-19 is over, to see how occupational therapy comes out and addresses all of the places that, you know, that need help, that need people to go in and help them reach their goals and help them be able to modify and adapt to the new changes in the new society that we may have in the future. Nobody, unfortunately, nobody knows what the future is actually going to hold as a whole. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of modifications come out, um, especially with healthcare in the future. You know, it'll be interesting to see. Yes, I also agree with that. And um, I, my primary um, background is in skilled nursing facilities, and I certainly um, experienced the PDPM um, transition and changes and, um, you know, everything from, you know, the new payment model to um, assistance be not being um, reimbursed the same amount as um, OTs. And it certainly does create that, you know, why question or what can we do or, you know, but it, it all leads down to how much we advocate for our profession and um, occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants are just as important um, in the profession. And, you know, as our world continues to evolve, um, you know, OTs and OT assistants are truly um, work together as a team in order for that to not only come to fruition, but also um, become something that will be around and consistent for us to be able to continue to grow. So thank you. Ruthie, now how about you? How are society's occupational needs changing given the current healthcare and education climate? And how can the profession um, help lead this change? I really thought about this question um, in relation to the population that I see. And um, I know for my students and their families, um, their occupational needs have definitely uh, change, you know, or change. So their routines have been significantly interrupted. Not only are the students, you know, they're not going to school, they don't have that normal day where they see their teacher and their friends, but their parents, you know, they are, they might not be working, maybe they are working and have had to adapt childcare. So, you know, this routine that is, that we know is so important has been um, so interrupted. Um, this is a new territory for all of us and having to learn um, how to adapt to it. Um, and I know we have, you know, summer vacations and winter breaks, but those are all planned. We expected them to happen. So I really think, you know, OT, it's, it's important that we consider these unexpected, um, situations where our routines are interrupted and how that's going to impact our students. Um, another need that I think, um, we can have an impact on is, you know, continuing to advocate for, um, different medias of therapy. For example, in this time, um, telehealth has been, you know, um, huge um, to continue therapy. And it's definitely a learning experience for everybody. But um, I think we're, we're so um, fit to be doing this, um, this platform of therapy, because we're so well versed in using a coaching method. Um, So I really think that OT um, can really help lead this change to um, having our our clients access um, 
therapy through different medias as well. Absolutely. And not only is just that is I'm sure that you're experiencing, you know, um, assisting the parents um, significantly through this. I myself have a student who receives speech therapy services. And um, yes, I'm an occupational therapist and I have speech therapy friends, but um, I'm not a speech therapist. So for me, it's like, okay, I'm receiving these assignments um, through a virtual platform, but am I really providing my child the maximum, you know, the best quality um, support and doing the best I can? But the speech therapist does a phenomenal job with checking in and even providing me with um, cues and tips on how to um, assist my son through these um, challenging times. So um, telehealth and virtual um, technology and, and how we are introducing it to our treatments is certainly something that's going to expand and who knows how many directions that we can use this. Thank you so much, Rosie. Now, Julie, um, from a um, regional platform, you must ex also experience these um, occupational needs amongst your staff and, uh, you know, going through all these changes um, that we've been experiencing in healthcare. So how can how how would you or how can the profession continue to help lead this change? Um, I agree. Also, advocacy is huge. Um, also, just networking. So if you know, we know someone who specializes in bladder training, bladder programs, um, kind of the more specialty areas. Make sure and kind of network with each other so that you can make suggestions and refer others. If you, um, if there's a physician asking you certain questions, you can say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not a specialist. However, I know a specialist, let me give you their information. So even networking can be very um, important. We have a lot of changes going on with society right now. Um, the use of technology is huge. So we really need to make sure that with the way that society is changing, the way that the world is changing, we keep up with it. So OT is able to train all of the newer occupations that are developing. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have to worry about teaching someone how to use a smartphone. Uh, now we need to teach our patients how to use a smartphone just for safety. If they're going to be living alone, they need to call for help. Smartphones aren't very easy if you're, you know, borderline um, early stages of dementia have difficulty learning new things. So it can take a lot of different sessions just to get that patient safe to call for help. So we have to stay up to date with what our patient's occupations are as well. Um, we really need to focus on, you know, the different populations that we're serving. It would be wonderful if we could get reimbursed for some more unique occupations and maybe get more involved in our communities where we didn't have to have someone at an inpatient level, but we could actually go out and work with them in their true home environment. And if someone is homeless, that is their home environment, we would be able to go and work with them wherever they're staying and really help those people have an improved quality of life. Yeah, there's Bill here. Thank you for all the contributions. I believe, yeah, like I've seen over the years too, in terms of efficacy, 
and changes to the healthcare climate. Definitely, it seems like I know when I started OT school in 09, social media is not really a thing. But now we are in 2020, and it's like the social media has been a bigger thing than before. And then, of course, like right now, it's like speaking of advocacy, I know uh, yesterday I actually participated in a Twitter chat that is specifically for healthcare leaders. And we're talking about, and these healthcare leaders come from all walks of life, like from doctors or even patient advocates. We talk about the changes in terms of how the new changes that is related to COVID-19, actually, and how technology will continue to evolve in healthcare in the future. So I think this is a very exciting time. And of course, also like with the social distancing, we never know when it is gonna be going away, but who knows, like we may also have to adapt into in terms of how do we share a message to, to the general public about what we can really do and what we can offer to the table. So now onto the Next questions, I guess we don't have that much time, but for maybe for these kind of questions, uh, for whoever wanna jump in can jump in rather than directing to a particular person. So the first bonus questions that we have is, how do we envision the future of our profession? So any of you can jump in. So I think that with COVID-19, our profession um, has already like had such a huge response to it. And we had, um, you know, AOTA send out two webinars um, that were free for, I, I'm not sure if it was for members or for everybody, but for, um, you know, treating specifically COVID patients in the hospitals, um, acute care and inpatient settings, and also for telehealth with um, school-based practice. And I just, um, think that, you know, with how quick we are able to react to this, I see, you know, our profession really growing in so many different ways. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, the telehealth, um, you know, we're very well suited to provide these services using a coaching model um, to reach all of our clients. And so I just see us um, really expanding everything we, we can do to further our profession. Yeah, thank you, Ruthie. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I definitely see that as well. And for me as an educator, definitely is like seeing how quickly many of our programs are transitioning to an online platform as well. So it can also open some new pathways in terms of academia as concerned. Anybody else want to jump in on this question? All right, so maybe I'll ask one more, Bill, if that's okay. Um, how do you advocate or promote um, the distinct value of OT to those that are not familiar with the profession? So I think the best way to advocate and promote OT and the distinct value of OT is just to educate people. You know, unless somebody has dealt with OTs in their history, like if they've had a, you know, a family and a loved one who's dealt with OT and has had to do OT, most people don't know what OT is. So just advocating and telling people what it is that we do, we treat the whole person, we treat, you know, physical impairments, mental impairments, we treat it all. 
and you know we treat a person like a person we don't just treat a disease so being able to help people become and do what they're passionate about and help people reach their goals is kind of one distinct value of OT that I like to promote I like to say that I treat the whole person I like to say I'm an occupational therapist instead of an occupational therapist because I like to allow people to become and allow people to do what they're passionate about what it is that they would love to get back to. Thank you. I really, I really love that. And I think that that's something that we always, um, and I think OTs across the board have become so good at explaining what OT is and um, advocating and how to, and um, especially now um, with AOTA month, it's April, you know, and it's OT month. So this is our time that we celebrate our profession and we use different um, innovative, creative ideas on how to promote the profession. Thank you, Julie, Melody, and Ruthie for your thoughtful responses. Um, I think that we certainly have been able to hit a lot of different important areas um, as far as leaderships and our roles um, in, in the profession. And so at this time, I would like to just conclude our discussion for this evening. Thank you again to Julie, Melody, and Ruthie for participating. Uh, we appreciate your time, your wisdom, and your positive energy during this particularly challenging period of transition. To our listeners, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. To continue the discussion, head over to AOTA's General Forum on CommuneOT or tweet us by using the hashtag OTLeadershipLive. Have a great night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.